Mentally Unscripted, Episode 31, Disconfirming Evidence and Falsifiability, the two most powerful mental tools you're not using. All right, welcome back to another episode of Minty Unscripted. I am Paul, and I'm here with Scott King Anarchy. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I cannot complain. We're a little bit on the road. Got out of Montana. We're now in the state of Washington in uh, Seattle and enjoying the uh, the nice, a little cooler weather. It's, uh, it's a nice place. So how's your week going? Great. We uh, watched Idiocracy last night. Have you seen that? <laughs> I've never seen that, okay. no. You should watch it. Okay. Definitely think it's more of a documentary these days than than a fantasy movie or a science fiction movie. <laughs> so definitely check it out. But it's it's interesting that you're in Seattle because Starbucks plays a prominent role in Idiocracy. Oh, does it? Except in Idiocracy, Starbucks is no longer a coffee shop. It's a place where guys can go and get hand jobs. <laughs> so, um, ah, okay. Yeah, um, so, Lovely. Yeah. So apparently that was one of the reasons why Idiocracy didn't get a lot of publicity when it first came out because some of the companies that lent their name to the to the movie weren't happy about how the movie portrayed the company. I don't know why they would feel that way. Exactly. Trying to protect a a brand that's absolutely being tarnished. Drag through the mud in the worst and most vile way. Right. Yeah. So Carl's yeah. Jr., Starbucks, Costco, they all got a good whipping, I guess. A good, a good whipping. Were there any brands that came out on top that, that came out looking good? No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Not one. So it, it was a real shame. It was pretty funny. Yeah. You know, something that was interesting is there's a, it's like a Gatorade type drink that's in the movie. It's called Brondo. And a Brondo Corporation ended up buying the FDA and the US Ag Department or something. I don't know. Ended up buying like all these departments in the, in the government. And they started watering crops with Brondo instead of water. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so one of the big issues in the movie is that they, they didn't have any food because crops weren't growing because they kept trying to water it with Brondo instead with of water. Brondo? Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, you're right. This does feel like a documentary. Right. We're, we're headed that way. Right. We're, we're definitely headed that way. <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny you talk about documentary. I'm thinking like, what will history say about this moment in time as we go through the most recent version of COVID? And now we're talking about the Delta variant, vaccine passports, people protesting in different parts of the world, different spikes. The amount of animosity I see online is is astounding. Um, just the, the hatred of, of people going after each other of, you know, vax, anti-vax, shut down something, what we should be doing with our children. It's just, it's a crazy time. Out here in Colorado, a state representative, I think it was, posted something on Twitter. There was a, a group of parents at the Jefferson County government building out here. Jefferson County's like right next to Denver, for those folks who, who don't know. And they were protesting, having to force their kids to wear masks at school. And so one of the state representatives sent out a tweet basically calling these parents terrorists because they didn't want to force their kids to, oh, okay. to wear masks. And it's not a good place when we're doing that. I mean, number one, it's just, it's not thinking. It's a false dichotomy for, for right. someone in a leadership yep. position to send out a tweet like that is, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's just pandering to a certain group of unintelligent people. I don't know if he's just unintelligent himself. I don't know what the deal is, but I mean, either way, something like that should just not happen. Yeah, it, it's funny, right? During the Orange Man years, everyone said, can you just take him off of Twitter? I'm wondering if we're starting to think that we should take all of our politicians <laughs> off of 
whatever. <laughs> just say, listen, you, you don't you don't get to do that anymore. But then you know, what what's the alternative? We 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 funnel them through these ridiculous media corporations that they give softball to some and and they basically do the 150 mile fastball to the other guy. And it I mean we're not getting good information that way either. Perhaps there's just no good yeah. answer at this point. Well, you know, like when you were little and your mom was like in the kitchen cooking or something and you were wanting to help, but you kept getting in her way, so she would hand you something to like here, you know, go play with this spoon or something. That's you know, right. Help mommy by doing that. I kind of think maybe we did that with the politicians. If we just took them, set them aside somewhere, and they're like, okay, like here, you guys just pass a bill or something and let the adults manage everything. <laughs> maybe we can do that somehow. Yeah, let, let the rest of us get on with life. Oh, it is oh, just a, it's just a time. But yeah, I think that's a good point to pivot into dis- to today's discussion. So for our listeners who tuned into one of our last episodes, it was about confirmation bias and COVID. And uh, we based that on an article that Scott wrote about confirmation bias, did this great job of exploring it and how we see patterns and how we, we look for information that just supports what we believe. And so here we wanted to take one of the ideas that he discussed in that article, which was disconfirming information, this idea that you can you can look at the opposite. So instead of looking at all the information that confirms what you know, it's trying to, to invert that or look at the opposite. And you, again, wrote a really interesting article, which took which talked about evidence and broke it down. So maybe can you start there explaining the idea of these two different bodies of evidence that we need to explore? I can definitely do that. Maybe just start off with an example. This was, I think, a really, really good example that I took from, I believe this came out of Max Bazerman's Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making book. Basically, what he did is he asked this question, are people who smoke pot delinquents? And when you do that, what happens is most people will, they'll think of someone that they know that smokes pot, and then they'll ask, is that person a delinquent? In order to really answer that question, you have to look at four quadrants of information. So you have to look at not only people who smoke pot and are delinquents, you have to ask other people who smoke pot and are not delinquents. You have to ask other people who don't smoke pot and are delinquents, people who don't smoke pot and are not delinquents, right? So you have to look at all four quadrants in order to really understand that, to be able to answer that question, because it's possible that there are pot smokers who aren't delinquents. Um, I think we probably all know some. The whole point there is our tendency is to just look at confirming evidence. And so that's the first type of of information or type of evidence is confirming evidence. And that's evidence that just confirms our beliefs. So we have the belief that pot smokers are delinquents. So we only look at people that we know who are pot smokers and delinquents. And then that's our evidence that our theory is correct. But when you look at pot smokers who aren't delinquents, then you can, that disproves your theory. That's what we call disconfirming evidence. But we, we tend to just ignore the disconfirming evidence when we're looking at the world around us. So we've got confirming evidence, which confirms our beliefs. We've got disconfirming evidence, which disconfirms our beliefs or proves our belief false or indicates our belief is false. What's interesting is in, in that example and in a famous study that was done by a guy named P.C. Wasson really demonstrates this. In the study, the researcher gave the study participants a sequence of three numbers, two, four, six. And these numbers, they conform to some rule. So the study participants, they, did, they weren't given the rule. They were just given the sequence. They were supposed to try to figure out what the rule was. And they did this by, they would look at the sequence, they would come up with a rule in their head, and then they would give the researcher their own sequence. And the researcher would say, yes, your sequence conforms to the rule or no, your sequence doesn't. And they were allowed to do that as many times as they needed to. And then when they felt like they knew what the rule was, they could guess the rule. Out of 26 people, only I think nine got it right, if I remember the statistics correctly. And what they found happening is that people were focusing on confirming evidence. 
so that you would look at the rule two four six, or you look at the sequence two four six, and you might think that the rule is even numbers in ascending order. So when the participant would give the sequence, give their own sequence back to the researcher, they would follow that rule. So they would say 10, 12, 14, 20, 22, 24. So all they would do is give the researcher back confirming information. And the researcher would say, yes, it conforms to the rule. Yes, it conforms to the rule. Then they would guess the rule, but they would get the rule wrong. So the actual rule was just three ascending numbers. So two, four, six, one, two, three, something like that. What they found is, like I said, there was a reluctance on people's part to guess sequences that don't conform to their hypothesized rule. So if you thought the rule was numbers that increase by two or even numbers that in sequence or something like that, you should guess one, two, three or, you know, five, seven, nine, because that would tell you if the rule that you thought was correct was actually correct. I hope that's making sense. I don't know if I explained that really well, but. What came to mind as you were talking was, and we've now had two or three conversations just about pattern recognition and how it's an innate part of our, our makeup, our DNA that helps us survive in the wild. And, but it can also create these other offsets, if you will, right? So what you're talking about. So I, I see those numbers and I have to devise my own understanding of the pattern. We're taught the difference between the number sets, right? The odd and even numbers. So if I see a pattern, I see a set of numbers and they all are even or odd. And someone tells me to go find that pattern, I'm going to start looking at that pattern. That, that's one of the, the starting points I'll use. And if I need to layer on top of that, this concept of disconfirming, right? So as you said, if, if someone said, okay, you present that problem to me and I think to myself, okay, I need to prove all the things that isn't. You you can move the numbers in reverse order. You could say, okay, well, what are the other areas? Let's put in odd order. Let's change the sequence up. There's there's different ways you could attack it. Um, but because the patterns have been imprinted in our minds based on our schooling, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, you have to teach people the differences between the odds and even numbers. But because of that, we are primed to think differently, right? Which is, which is interesting. I mean, this is, again, part of our makeup that we've got this pattern recognition that can fool us. So uh, it's kind of an interesting observation. Right. Well, I'm not sure, at least it is to me. <laughs> what I thought was interesting about this is one of the problems that we have is when confirming evidence, a lot of the times it can, can fit more than one hypothesis. You know, the sequence two, four, six, that could fit numbers that increase by two, a sequence where the difference between the first two numbers equals the difference between the second two numbers, you know, just any three ascending numbers. So what you have to do is you have to guess, you have to hypothesize a rule, and then you have to guess sequences that do not conform to that rule. So you know which of these hypotheses to throw out of your pool. So if you're only guessing confirming evidence, then you're never going to be able to eliminate any hypothesis. I was thinking back to Sherlock Holmes with his deductive reasoning, where he said, if you eliminate the impossible, anything that's left, however improbable, is the truth. It's right. that same general concept. Yeah. Here. But as people, and like we talked about in the confirmation bias episode, you know, as people, we want to be correct. The easiest thing for us to do is just find confirming information. In your research, and when you were pulling together these articles, the reason we want to be correct, it's an energy saving mechanism, right? I mean, it has to, it has to do with our, our evolutionary traits where to go through all of the ways you could be wrong and testing all of those is expensive in terms of energy and time. So we're trying to find and select for what is easiest for us. Uh, and then that, you know, that's a concept of being correct. Is that your understanding after looking at the literature? Absolutely. Our brain is one of the most intensive resource users, energy users in the human body. It's probably may even be the biggest energy user in the human body. And to, like you said, have to, to go through all the information to take the time to disconfirm information, it's a huge cognitive load. And sometimes yeah. we don't have time to do that. If it's a you know high stakes, dangerous situation, you may not have time to go through disconfirming evidence. Sometimes it just may not be worth 
worth it. I think we use that uh, the example of deciding what pair of socks do you wear. If you get that question wrong, like you might be a little embarrassed, but no one's going to really care. So you probably don't need to. So you haven't been in the meeting. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I don't know about you. When I, when I wear the wrong yeah. socks, I, I hear about yeah. it. Okay. So, you know, it may not be worth it to really sit there and try to gather disconfirming information about what pair of socks looks best with an outfit you picked for that day. Right. And, you know, we want to feel good too. People, mm-hmm. we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to be confident. So we want to be right. So if we think that we'll, we'll go back to the, the women are bad drivers. If we think that women are bad drivers, then we are just going to seek out and latch onto any information that confirms that belief. And mm-hmm. Anything that we see that disconfirms that belief, you know, we see a, you know, a woman stunt car driver or something that would disconfirm that belief, right? That causes that cognitive dissonance. We, d- we don't want to believe that there could be a woman that's a better driver than us, you know, so right. we just kind of discount it or we'll explain it away. Yeah. And it's to your point, like, I mean, we want to be right, but there's also the survival basis that we, we need to be right when, when it counts. So, I mean, if you're choosing uh, flowers to eat in the, in the wild, you need to be looking for signs that they may be poisonous. Or if you're you're eating meat uh, that you've caught in a sign that's still fresh, so there's there's a value to being right that beyond just feeling feeling good, that, that's the reward that we're receiving. But then there's there's a survival mechanism, you know, kind of bring us back to the beginning point. We we know that we have these two bodies of information. We typically go for the information that confirms what we what our belief is. We start with a belief, then we're looking for information that confirms that, and then we have this other body of information that we typically choose not to look at. Most of us are primed not to look at it, but it's the, as you said, it's the other areas of that four quadrant that would say, okay, is there evidence that would disconfirm what I believe? Which gets into this other idea of disconfirmation, a hypothesis that you can test and disconfirm, right? So maybe talk a little bit about that. It was Karl Popper's idea of a disconfirmation. Karl Popper was a scientific philosopher and he's famous for coming up with the notion of falsifiability Mm -hmm. which what he says is if you have a hypothesis your testing should be geared towards not trying to prove the hypothesis is correct but by trying to criticize the hypothesis or prove that the hypothesis is incorrect and it goes back to this idea of when you're looking for confirming evidence because you're using inductive reasoning you're going from specific observations out to some sort of a general conclusion if your hypothesis is vague enough it can explain everything even though it's not technically correct. Right. So his position was what you need to do is you need to approach it from the other side. You need to say, okay, now can we take this hypothesis? Can we test it? And can we falsify it? That's how he distinguished between science and pseudoscience. One example that was given was, try to pull this out of my head here, Adler, I believe is his name. He was a psychologist and he came up with the theory that human action is motivated by insecurity. Mm -hmm. So that was his hypothesis is that our insecurities motivate our actions. And Popper looked at that and said, well, okay, let's take two instances or two examples here. In one example, you have a man who kills someone by drowning them. And then in another instance, you have a man who risks his own life to save someone from drowning. You could argue that in both cases, both actions are being driven by insecurity. Mm. So in, in either case, you couldn't falsify the argument that insecurity drove the man to do what he wanted to do. In the first case, right, he wanted to show that he was tough and could and could commit a crime. The other one, they wanted to show that he was heroic. So yeah. insecurity drove him both ways. And so that's the point is, if someone has a theory and there's nothing that you can come up with that would make them disbelieve their theory, then it's not falsifiable. And I think of flat earthers, the flat earther folks. <laughs> yeah. 
they've got this theory that the earth is flat and that there's there's huge conspiracy covering this up and all of the information that you give them they've got a counter for it and it's usually right. it usually falls into the into the realm of well every pilot in the world is in on it every ship captain in the world who can see out over the horizon you know everybody's in on it nasa's in on it so for them it's unfalsifiable because there's nothing that you can tell them that's going to get them to change their mind they're always going to have an answer for it so that would fall into the bucket of pseudoscience you know it's there's a couple of different points to tease out there right one of them is that people look for explanations the mind doesn't enjoy explanation gaps when when it matters to your life and well-being so you look for information that explains it you look for a theory that explains it so that's point one right this is why i think people will glom on to ideas like flat earth or other types of conspiracy theories that are you can prove are inaccurate or wrong i mean in the case of flat earth we can do measurements with the sun and and just prove out that we, we don't need to have a picture of the earth from space right there's different there's other ways we can test and prove that the earth is is a sphere but uh there's there's reasons that people glom on to those ideas to explain actions or activities that in their own lives make sense so that's that's kind of the reason that this body pseudoscience even exists and there's another side which is that if you're in conversations with people and they start to make claims you can ask yourself and this goes just into this the general idea of what we're trying to do on this podcast which is to give people better tools to think about how do I engage with people on difficult topics if someone makes a claim you know before you even feel the need to respond you can ask yourself is that a falsifiable claim because oftentimes you'll find someone making a statement that isn't falsifiable then they want to engage someone else on that topic well if it's if it's an unfalsifiable idea then there is no way you're ever going to reach bedrock you're always going to be chasing your tail right because then you'd have to say well that's that's a that's a topic that we can't really explore in any useful way we're never going to reach the bottom of it you know and, and a good example of that in my opinion is good is man good or evil right? is, he, is he generally good or is he generally evil like how, how do we actually test that right it goes to me it's 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 a little bit of parallel with what you're talking about this idea of what what are our motivations there's instances where we may be able to test it but to say that man is one way or another it's difficult so we, we need a different claim that we could actually test so if you're, you're again if you're in discussions with people realize that pseudoscience exists because we want to have explanations also realize that some people are going to be sharing claims that cannot be tested and that's fine i would almost look at those conversations and be like do i really want to engage on that especially if i feel strongly on going the opposite direction so let's explore a little bit i mean in your mind i think popper's view is is extraordinarily profound that if we're asking ourselves like we can only we can constantly have evidence that suggests x but the easiest way is to have the counter evidence that just nullifies the hypothesis right but are there areas in which we can't know but it's still good to have those hypotheses. So I guess the, the opposite of the, the falsifiable claim, is there still value in having claims that we can't falsify in terms of understanding our reality? I think so. Just because something's not falsifiable doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that we can't test it and falsify it. And the other thing too is I think of it as falsifiability. It's a way to refine a hypothesis. So we may have a hypothesis that's that's really general. So we test it and we can we figure out a way to disprove that hypothesis, but then we can take that information that we got from that test and then refine our hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So the example I give in my article is if I see a woman walk past my house every day at 9 a.m. with her dog for a week, then I could hypothesize that tomorrow I'll see her walk by the house or that she walks by the house every day at 9 a.m. with her dog. So if I keep looking for confirming information, so every day that she walks by, I check it off in a notebook, I never actually prove my hypothesis that she walks by every day.
every day. All I've proven is that she's walked by every day since that first day that I saw her Mm -hmm. up to this day. But if I look for disconfirming evidence, so I just look for one day where she didn't walk by, well, then I I disproved the hypothesis that she walks by every day at that time with her dog. But then I can refine that and say, I can look at what the situation was that day. Maybe it was raining. So I refine my hypothesis every day that it's not raining. The woman walks by my house with her dog at 9 a.m. And then I I can start testing that. So over time, I think it, it will help you refine your hypotheses. It can also, when we talk about probabilistic thinking, it can give us some indication of where we are on that probabilistic scale. So even though we can't completely disprove it and we can't completely prove it, I think we can still look at all the evidence to figure out, well, is this more likely than not? And I'm thinking of what we were talking about before we started the podcast, our favorite model. One of our favorite models is that incentives matter. Well, technically we can't disprove that. It's non-falsifiable. But what we can do is we can look at history. We can look at the evidence we do have. And a lot of instances come up with a probability, pretty high probability that a certain incentive mattered in this particular case, even though we can't prove Mm -hmm. it 100% for sure. And when you think about it, you know, a lot of our legal systems built on that same idea. When we're going to convict someone of a criminal offense, we have a measure of beyond a reasonable doubt, but we don't require there to be 100% confidence that the person is the offender. We just require beyond a reasonable doubt, which is, it's still a pretty high bar to, to cross, but we acknowledge that we may not be able to absolutely prove 100% that somebody did right. something. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think all those examples really show you why it's valuable to be able to shift between these ideas and I think be able to know when you should be testing and, and engaging on it and when it's valuable to have something that's probabilistic because I, that still can provide a model of understanding about your world around you without the certainty that many people would prefer to have, but just isn't realist, realistic. So let's talk about this in the wild. And we talked a little bit about this before we started a recording, but if you take these concepts to COVID, it's fascinating, right? I mean, how do we actually understand what we can test and what we can't test, right? And so the the, the example we were going into was masks. Uh, this, this concept that is going around. So I think the, the CDC recently changed or updated their guidance stating that people even if they have received their vaccination, they should still be wearing masks inside because they are capable of spreading COVID. And the most recent strain, the Delta variant is, well, it's very virulent, if if that's the right word. It it likes to move around. And so they're now saying, well, we should be wearing masks. And I think a lot of people point to studies that run contrary to this idea that masks are going to slow the spread. And we were talking about it, right? How easy is, is it to actually run a test to to actually see if masks work. How would you actually, I guess, what would you need to do to set that up to actually be able to falsify it? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, the mask thing, it's pretty interesting because first off, just the claim that masks work or masks are effective. That I mean, that's a pretty broad claim. You're not defining the type of mask. You're not defining exactly when and where people are wearing them. You're not defining what effective means. If you can lower case counts by 1%, is that effective? Or, you know, does you have to lower case counts by 80%. So that claim in itself, that's just not falsifiable. And for every study that somebody can produce that says masks don't work, I bet we can produce a study that says they do work. And and that's the difficulty in it is... 
how do you test that? And even if you look at an area, so recently I've been reading articles about how Sweden has their seven day moving average of deaths as of the last I heard, which I think was last Friday. Today's the Monday, the ninth. They were at zero deaths on their seven day moving average and they have like a 9% mask rate and no mask mandates. Right. And then you've got some place like California or New York that had pretty strict mandates that are, I think are still having deaths from COVID. But can you really compare Sweden to New York? Different climates, different population densities, that sort of thing. It's really hard. And when you look at the infection rates, if you look at those little curves, there's a lot of people on Twitter who like to post these curves and they'll put in there, they'll mark the date that the mask mandate went into effect in this particular area. And then they'd like to show that weeks after the mask mandate went into effect, the curve skyrocketed. So they like to say, well, this proves masks. Hockey sticks. They they, they like to say like, well, this proves masks don't work. And then on the other side, people will say, well, no, the curve would have been just much higher if we didn't have the masks. So masks do work. Well, neither of those claims is falsifiable because how do you test that? Right. I think that's where I find it difficult to engage with people because they can have certainty in the unfalsifiable and they'll say something. I I brought this up. I said, well, I, I don't feel like we really understand masks very well. And someone said, what do you mean? Like we have all this data. I said, well, for all the reasons you just shared, what exactly is the measurement that we use to say masks work? The simplest point that really just confuses me is we don't have guidance on how frequently we should be changing out the mask, the thickness of the mask, the material. Does it have to be N95? Again, we talked about this, this idea like if everyone was doing N95 masks and they were fitted correctly, do we have a study that shows that information, a population that everyone's wearing the N95 versus ones that are just wearing cloth versus, you know, you see these memes online of someone just blowing smoke through one of these masks and they're going, well, look, it doesn't work. So it's it's confusing and it's compounded. The confusion is compounded by people that believe in certainty or want that certainty in unfalsified question or claim. And it's and that, that, that creates a lot of exhaust for us to get through, right? I mean, just in terms of being able to connect with each other and make appropriate decisions. Now, part of it, I, I suppose you should also be asking yourself, what is the value here, right? How, how should I be looking at this as an individual? So, I mean, I, I guess when you're thinking about this, Scott, like, and we have these claims that are unfalsifiable, that's fine if it's just purely theoretical. But in reality, all of us have to make decisions about what are we doing with COVID? How do we operate with our family and our friends? I mean, how, how do you think about the right decision matrix to, you know, when you think about something like masks? I think we have to go to more of a probabilistic model and we have to weigh the costs and the benefits. And that's one thing that I think gets missed is we are not good at weighing risk. We look at the masks and we say, okay, well, such and such study says that masks reduce infection rates by 50%. There's also studies out there that show that masks, not just ineffective, but that they're detrimental to your health. They increase the carbon dioxide in your blood levels. They can increase anxiety. They trigger that fight or flight response. So mentally and physically, there can be some detriment to the masks. There was a study that showed, especially for kids, it's even worse because kids, their lungs aren't strong enough to expel the carbon dioxide through the mask the way Mm. adults are. So the carbon dioxide levels in their blood rises even faster than it does for an adult. Mm -hmm. And then the headaches. I know when I wear a mask for a long time, I I tend to get headaches. So we need to weigh that. So is that 50% reduction in infection rates? Is that worth the negative impacts of the masks? And I don't 
don't think we do a good job of weighing that. And so what I think it really boils down to is we have to put the information out there and just let people decide for themselves what's best for them. Mm -hmm. That's where I fall on the scale. But unfortunately, the narrative has gotten out there that it's not just about you. It's about all the people who are around you. So if you're doing something that's detrimental to their health, that you're some sort of an evil person. And so that's where the whole conversation really gets muddied up. Well, Scott, I just wanted to let you know, I do think you're evil, but not for those reasons. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Hey folks, I wanted to jump in here and say a quick thank you. We've had a lot of new listeners come on board in the last couple of months, and we're happy to see our numbers growing. And we know you have a lot of options in how you spend your time, and Paul and I are grateful that you're choosing to spend it with us. And it has us highly motivated to keep bringing you new episodes and improving the quality of our content. But we have a small favor to ask of you. If you like the show, please share it. And please go out to your podcast player of choice and like, follow, subscribe, or whatever. That way, our new episodes will automatically show up in your feed, and then we'll get more more attention from the podcast gods. Thank you and back to the show. But another thought came to mind as you were talking that there is humans are going to have a difficult time weighing this evidence and this information in a point of uncertainty. And here we are dealing with a virus that you can hear some people tell us it's as bad as the bubonic plague and other people say it's just a a bad flu. And because of that, because we're not dealing with airborne AIDS, it makes it harder in many ways for us to determine and make some of these calculations because we're not all on the same page with how dangerous this virus is. And I think back to the information that we've had. So we, we have a death count and we know that there are stories of people saying, well, they, you know, this person died in a car wreck and they were counted as a COVID death. This person was decapitated in this horrible accident. It was a COVID death. Well, you hear that and you question some of the numbers. And if you look at the numbers, we still don't understand as far as, as, far as I can tell, and maybe we never will. And maybe this is just part of virology where you study a pathology and you're looking at its its growth rate, but you don't you can only estimate, you're never gonna have exact numbers. But you know, if I look at the number of people that had died, it has like a one and a half to one point seven percent fatality rate. Now that's not a morbidity rate. And again, that that leads into more of the problem where this killed 10%, 15%, 20%. Would it wouldn't it make some of these decisions? When I, I guess wouldn't people when they think about the probabilistic thinking, it would help maybe us align as a society on what the appropriate risks are to take with a mask, with social distancing. I feel like you know, we're, we're still struggling with even understanding how deadly we actually, many of us actually believe this is. Exactly. And it's really unfortunate that a lot of the issues with the statistics aren't driven by just the difficulty of measuring it, but it's driven by other incentives. So there's certain groups who they have an incentive to overinflate some of these numbers. Other groups have an incentive to try to deflate the numbers. And right. some of it's just crazy. So when you've got that further skewing the numbers, we just don't know what the actual death count is. Right. Saw something recently that they've taken the PCR test off the market because like it wasn't distinguishing between the flu and COVID accurately enough or something. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know the whole story, but it, it, you know if that's true, then how many of these COVID cases were people with the flu? They're both respiratory viruses with very similar symptoms. Right. And at least at one point, doctors didn't, you didn't even need a positive COVID test. The doctor could just identify you as being COVID positive just based off your symptoms. And if you right. look at the list of symptoms, I mean, yeah, it could have just been a flu, but people got so scared that 
they would get a sore throat and start to cough, they would go to the hospital, get diagnosed with COVID when in years past, they would have just taken some NyQuil and binge watched something on TV and slept for a few days. The whole idea of how dangerous is this is it's just gotten so skewed. Right. I don't know how you would really make that assessment. I mean, I can tell you for me, I'm not in a high risk group. You know, I'm healthy. My blood work is good. You know, I'm about 5'10", 190 pounds, about 12%, 13% body fat. My exercise, I eat well. So it's just never been anything for me that I've been terribly concerned about just based off yeah. of what we're seeing from people who are ending up in the hospital. It's people with high obesity, people with metabolic conditions, that sort of thing. And I just don't fit that group. So for me, Right. I'm not looking at myself as being high risk, but somebody else could you know, be focusing on completely different information and tell me that even though you're not in danger from it, well, you know, maybe you still have it and you're breathing it out and you're around it, that sort of right. thing. So it, it's really hard. It's really hard to know. Unfortunately, we can't see viruses, <laughs> so we don't know how much no. we're breathing out. We don't know how much we're leaving behind as we're going on about about our lives. Right. No, it, it really confounds the, the issue of us getting on with our lives and figuring out what the next steps are. Talking about it with my wife, we keep on coming back to, well, we don't want to get COVID and we don't want to give it to other people. We know that it's real and we know that we know people that have died from it. Uh, we know that it can have terrible, terrible symptoms. And again, we don't know the the long-term morbidity statistics on what is it that people that have dealt with this. But we're struggling to make sense of the information we do have because to the point you made, we're not hearing an unfiltered, ultra-scientific viewpoint that seems to give a level-headed view on what this is. We're consistently hearing a narrative that is one way or the other. And it, again, I just come back to this this idea that, I mean, if you're trying to falsify information, you're trying to make better decisions for yourself, it makes it incredibly difficult. And as someone who's generally skeptical, it makes it harder to want to trust. I feel like the environment we're in today just creates a whole distrust machine. You and I have talked about just the idea that we, we lack the institutional trust that would be highly beneficial at a time like this. Uh, it's just, it's eroded down to, I, I have to imagine, some of the lowest levels in modern history. You know, that's also biased towards what I've experienced. Uh, I'm sure if I went back and looked at the data, I'd, you know, if I think about League of Nations last century and how that just fell apart and it was replaced with the United Nations, but I mean, there was obviously a time when people didn't believe at that institution at all. The same can be said for for many other institutions of, of any country. I'm sure there were many, many periods where they were just crumbling. Right. That's a good point. In order to falsify something, you have to have reliable data. And when you don't, what do you do? And I think all we can really do is try to revert down to probabilistic thinking to yeah. start depending on some heuristics. If you're someone who trusts the government, then do what the government tells you. If you're someone who's more skeptical of the government, then listen to what the government says and start doing the opposite. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's unfortunate. And even for someone who tries to, I'll be honest, I've pretty much given up on COVID. <laughs> I'm just not paying much attention to it anymore because mm -hmm. now with just all of the cases are spiking, it's people with vaccines, people that have been vaccinated, and then it's the people who haven't been vaccinated are the reason why it's spiking and the people who haven't. I, I mean, I'm just not even following it anymore. It's all so confusing. There's so much obfuscation out there and so much contradictory information that it's just, it, it's maddening. It's mind numbing. It is. And you were talking about the spike in numbers 
there's when we're talking about the U.S., Israel has seen a, a spike. That's an area that's highly vaccinated, and not only are the the vaccinated transmitting it to to others, many people in the hospital are vaccinated. And again, going back to this information, if you're trying to have a pure view of what is the data, what is it actually telling me? Are there claims that were made around the vaccine that we could now compare against and say, okay, they made a claim of what one of them could be. Well, the claim is that you won't be able to spread COVID if you've taken the vaccine. That now seems to be false. Now, now, now we actually understand that no, you can spread COVID even if you've had the vaccine. Then another claim could be uh, you will not be hospitalized if you have the vaccine. Well, that seems to be some of the early data suggests that well, that may not actually be the case. Now, these can be edge cases. They call these breakthrough cases. Part of this, though, is part of the information machine. I feel like that is constantly that that's creating the challenge, right? I mean, if you went out to people and said, "Listen, our hope, our best hope is that we'll we'll slow the infection rate. We will prevent people from being in the hospital at a greater rate, and we're going to prevent people that would otherwise die. We're going to hopefully just be hospitalized." So there's a little bit of, as you said, probabilistic thinking. Some of the language could be a little bit better. It feels like it's the opposite, and again, a lot of the narrative is just creates more confusion, in my opinion. Speaking of falsifiable, this claim that unvaccinated people are the cause of this spike. Remember, that's unfalsifiable. We said, I have no idea how we would prove that. So there's a lot of stuff out there that people are hearing and they're latching onto that I think it would benefit for them just say, okay, now how would I disconfirm this? How would we falsify this? And ask yourself, how would someone who really believes this, if I were to give them evidence, what would their response be or how would they take it? I'm almost at a point where I just don't know what to say anymore other than a lot of the COVID stuff. If we got all of the speculation and just these unfalsifiable, untestable, unfalsifiable hypotheses out of the way. And we just sat down with, this is what we know right here. I think it would be a much different conversation than what we're having now. I agree. And I part of it, I put on the population. We need to be asking good questions. We need to be literate in these concepts of falsifiable, falsifiability. But I think a huge responsibility falls on the leadership in these institutions. I, I just, I can't, I can't walk away from that. They've been given a task, whether you agree that they should have that task or not, they were given it. And the information has just continued to be confusing at a time where we feels like we should have some of this information. Well, confusing. And I think intentionally divisive. Yes. Yes. I, I don't understand why this is a left wing, right wing dichotomy when it's being discussed. It doesn't really lend itself to that in my opinion. No, but I think we've devolved to that point where everything is going to have to be a left-wing, right-wing argument, or at least on the surface. Now, who knows, depending on how conspiracy theory-ish you want to get, maybe they're just purposely doing this to distract the public away from some of the more nefarious things they're doing behind the scenes. Who knows? You mean like a $3.6 trillion infrastructure bill? done uh, <laughs> through procedures. Right. And apparently they're trying to sneak through some crypto privacy that's right. legislation or something, something that's going to take away your privacy in the crypto world. It all could be totally 100% on purpose. I don't know. But when we talk about incentives, I agree. We can't disprove that money or power or influence is an incentive here, but we can look at history and say, this isn't the first time that they've used a crisis to send a lot of taxpayer money into their big crony corporate partners into their bank account. And it's certainly not the first time that members of Congress have made questionable stock trades based off of information that they knew about a coming crisis. And so we can't say 100% for sure that it, that there's some nefarious incentives here, but I think in a probabilistic scale, I'd put it at about 95%. That low? Yeah, well... <laughs> 
I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you need a, you need a little bit of margin out of error. Yeah, I fully agree. I, I can't even really, I don't want to pile on on that because I'm fully in agreement there. Ultimately, we need citizens to see each other and other, other citizens as that and realize that the people that are in power have for good or, you know, good or ill, they have incentives to keep us divided uh, so that they can maintain power. And we need to be realize that we're stronger than that and communicate differently, right? Which is the whole reason we have this podcast is being able to have conversations and think more clearly so you can engage with other people. You're not going to be able to engage with the politician and leadership, but you can engage with other people and have a meaningful, productive conversation about what you think and how you feel and what your beliefs are. And then you can also realize that maybe you need to spend more time thinking about your own beliefs, that there may be the feelings of certainty may not be well-founded. Right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with asking yourself if your opinion is falsifiable or what someone would have to show you to get you to change your mind. So if you think masks work and you ask yourself that question and you just are 100% in the masks work camp and everyone should wear them, then understand that your opinion is unfalsifiable. You know, acknowledge that. I'm not saying that your opinion's wrong. Like we said, just because it's not falsifiable doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, but understand that there is room there, possibility that you're wrong. So I think the upshot here is this idea of just confirming information, falsifiability. It's it's a really powerful tool to help us refine our hypotheses by helping us eliminate what's not true. But even if we can't falsify something, we can still look at it and we can still move into that world of probabilistic thinking and still try to apply the evidence we have to try to come up with a probability or a likelihood of something being true or false. But when you move into that world, understand you're in that world. So when you're communicating with someone, be open-minded that someone else is going to have different, they're going to weigh evidence differently than you do, different experiences, and you may come out different places on that probabilistic scale. Absolutely. Well, I think we've kicked COVID around as much as possible in the last couple of episodes. Is there anything else you think we need to uh, share with our audience? No, not today. We're lining up an interview with another podcaster who does a mental models podcast. So if it's not going to be the next episode, it'll be the episode after, but we're really looking forward to that. Stay tuned. And if anyone's got any ideas on people we might want to try to get on the podcast to talk about mental models and critical thinking, anything like that, yeah, definitely shoot us a message because we're always willing to reach out to people. I've not been shy about telling people that I'm a libertarian free market guy, but if anyone out there knows people who are the opposite, but who are willing to have an engaging conversation, I I would love to talk to people like that. Absolutely. This whole podcast is about engaging with ideas and we we do our best to be level-headed, clear thinking neutral, but we know that we're not. We know we're biased and we would love for someone who has a good faith mindset that would love to engage with these ideas and share information that they think contradicts what our beliefs are. So always open for that. Hopefully you got some uh, new tools today to think about your beliefs and how you can approach approach them thinking about falsifiability and, and what you're hearing. This helps you have better conversations, both thinking about what your own beliefs are, then also having better conversations with those you love and you want to engage with. So take care be good and uh, we'll be with you real soon. Cheers. Well, that will do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. But hey, you're one step closer to kicking all this tribal garbage peddled by the politicians and the media to the side and seeing the world for what it really is with intelligence and rationality. Take care. 